Good morning, everybody. This is Katie Lear. I am the convention host for Florida Council of the Blind. This is the GDUF meeting, Guide Dog Users of Florida. We would like to welcome all FCB participants on Zoom and on ACB radio and in the room. We would also like to welcome our people from ACB and people from GDUI. So I'm going to turn the meeting over now to Tom Hansen, who is our president of Guide Dog Users of Florida. Thank you, Katie. And again, good morning to all. Um, I now call this meeting, annual meeting of the Florida Guide Dog Users to order. We must do this because in accordance with our documents, we have to conduct one piece of business, and that is to announce the new officers for the 21-23 two-year term. My pleasure to announce the following. President, Doug Hall. Vice President, Tom Hansen. Recording Secretary, Katie Lear. Treasurer, Kathleen Trutzel, and membership secretary, Barbara Hayes. The Guide Dog Users Group appreciate these people stepping forward and to uh, offer their services for the next two years. And that goes into effect Sunday, May 2nd, as soon as Sheila gavels the meeting and your guys begin. Um, so with that, Today we're going to have our annual program, and we have a topic of how you match a guide with a handler. This is a topic that isn't getting a lot of play right now, but I think it's a significant and important part of the whole process of how is a match, when is it going to be good, and are there any problems along the way. Our moderator today, oh, before I do that, we, if there is time at the end of this meeting, we will take questions and we will alternate questions from the room here at Maitland and from Zoom, from the Zoom platform. So um, once Doug announces that it's time for questions, that is the process we will be using. And our moderator today of our panel is Doug Hall, who has been a guide dog user since 1972. He has had eight different guides, and um, he can perhaps tell you about his one right now, who is Watson, a golden retriever. So with that, Doug, you're on. I want to thank Tom for all you've done for the past two years, uh, or for, excuse me, four years, what you've done for guide dog users and all the things you've done, you have been fantastic. And I really appreciate you agreeing to be my, vi my vice president. Okay, to start the program today, first of all, I need people to remember, as Tom mentioned, please hold your questions and any comments till the end. We have a number of issues we wanna cover and I wanna do that before we open the floor and get distracted. Um, also toward the end, um, 
we may wish to go around the room and have people introduce themselves, but I want to get started on this other thing first. Okay, please remember if you have a question, if you're in the room, if you have a question, raise your hand or whatever, and please don't speak until you are on the microphone because the people that are zooming in can't hear people in the room speaking unless they are on the mic. Okay, to start, I'd like to thank the wonderful panelists that we have, very knowledgeable panelists that we have to share information about their programs. And I'm gonna go ahead and introduce them now. Uh, first of all, I believe they're in the room. Eric Lurie, you are there? Fantastic, thank you. Uh, Eric is the founder and the mo main mobility instructor for Freedom Guide Dogs. Uh, he is fantastic. The second person, uh, hopefully um, zooming in, is Keith McGregor from Leader Dog. Keith, are you there? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Oh, you sound good. Thank you. Um, Keith's been with Leader for quite a while. Um, he basically oversees quality assurance of canines and also oversees the deafblind program for leader. The third person we have is Marissa Blanco and I'm sure Marissa's there because I've heard you three or four times this morning. Marissa? Good morning. I'm you are there. Wonderful. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, Marissa uh, is the manager of training. Uh, of a training team. Of training team for Southeastern. Correct. And the fourth person who has agreed to be with us is Susie Wilburn. Susie, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm here. Fantastic. Thank you. Susie's director of alumni relations for Southeastern. Um, all these four people have indicated that they're willing to share their, their thoughts, their information with our group. Okay, to start off, let me, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and ask a question and I'd like each of the panelists to respond to that question. The first thing I had, and by the way, I did share these questions with our panelists. Uh, prior to setting this up, I had requested and a number of people have sent me in questions of concern that they wanted our panelists to cover. So I'm gonna address those questions at the end of these questions, I will open the floor to comments and questions from, from the audience, both zooming in and also in the room. Uh, at that point, go ahead and ask your, your questions. Okay, um, first, uh, I'm gonna lead with Eric, then uh, Keith, and then Marissa and Susie. The first question I have, and this is an interesting one, what are the characteristics that you have found that are very important in terms of being able to properly match a guide dog and a potential guide dog or a student? Uh, Eric, what's your thought? It's a pretty big, broad question. And I think the key word that you use there is the word match. I mean. It is like the guide dog uses it. No, it's like making a marriage. You have to find two that connect and yet aren't so similar that they bore each other. And 
So you need, you need to have some dynamics there, you know. I, you know. My wife and I are very different, but yet we have the same values and drive and direction. So it is really important to find that, to make that personality match. And the second match would be talking about ability. You know, if it's, if one dog, a dog could be too much or too little for somebody. And uh, blind people are very good about tolerating that, but we really want to make it as comfortable and as compatible as possible. So again, making a marriage, and then both of them have to make it work. And yes, it's a team effort, but the dog is there to serve man and woman, and not man and woman serve the dog. Sometimes the dogs sometimes think they're in charge, so, which we give them that grace, and when they're working as a guide dog, you know, they take charge to navigate from time to time. But I think those are the two most important things and, you know, the third one, bottom line, when you're all said and done, is it safe? It may not be pretty, but if it's safe and they're both happy, then we're good. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Okay, Keith. First of all, thank you for inviting leader dogs to be part of the panel. Um, some of the main things that we look for when we're trying to develop a match for a client and a dog are the environment that the client lives in. Um, the speed with which they walk, their family environment, um, are there young kids in the family? And then we obviously look at the personalities of the dogs and try to match those best we can with the, with the applicants. And um, as Eric said, it does come down to the compatibility of, of both the dog and the client and the activity level and the ability um, orientation, mobility, and, and all those things. Okay, thank you. Uh, Marissa? Um, thank you for having me as well. And I will answer as best as I can, because I think we all as guide dog schools are pretty much on the same page of what we like to do. Um, definitely personality is a must. Um, we also want to make sure it's safe at the end, but we also want to make sure is there orientation and mobility um, something that is going to make them successful to have a guide dog? Do they have a history of, you know, understanding that this is teamwork? Because I think teamwork and safety are the two number one keys. Also their home environment, uh, their hobbies, you know, are they working? Are they going to be flying? Because there are some dogs that, as we know, are better in certain environments than others. Are they going to downtown like New York or Tampa a lot? Or are they in a more rural area? Um, just like people, some, you know, Dogs love it. They can handle that. Um, also, uh, pace and pull is one thing, obviously, that is definitely important. Um, we want to make sure that person is comfortable because it's not always, a, you can't receive a dog that's going to go slow to fast. You know, they pretty much have their one set pace. So that's a really big key factor and their home environment, like um, Keith said, like, do they have children? How active is that household? You know, some dogs prefer more of a low-key household. Some do not care. So I think we're all on the same page with how we pretty much like to make a, su a successful match. Okay, thank you. Susie, would you like to add anything? By the way, Su uh, Susie, I believe you are a guide dog user, correct? I am. So I'm going to echo what all three of them just said. For me, um, as a user, the, the pace and the pool had to be spot on for me. Um, my dog has the exact same personality as I do, and that... You can take that as good or bad, whichever you choose. <laughs> but he does, you know, it, it is very important for a user to be 
completely comfortable while they're traveling. Um, almost a seamless travel where I don't know that he's there and he just keeps me safe and we are that in tuned with each other. And I think it's important for everybody to understand that that does not happen on day one, two, three, or 20. Um, that, that comes with the working of the team. So it has to, the handler has to realize it's always gonna be a 50-50 deal. Um, sometimes 70-25, 75 him, 25 the handler. So um, I, I really do think it's important for the personality and preferences to be matched. One other thing, you know, everybody talks about a family life, but the other pets in your household um, are very important. Whether or not our dog is going to be subservient to a 28 pound Maine Coon at home um, who doesn't like dogs is pretty important too. So uh, I echo what everybody else said. It's really about the comfort level, the pace, the pull, and just the the environment that the dog's going to be in. Okay, thank you. Okay, my next uh, question is actually related to the first one, and the next question is why do you think that a match may not work out either during training or after the placement is done? Um, again, Eric. Thanks, Doug. Um, yeah, that could be a myriad of uh, reasons, um, whether it be the dog or the blind person. But, you know, we all work as hard as we can because this is like, this is like the proving ground to make that right decision. Because it's, you know, the blind person's investment emotionally and physically. But it is so important that we do the best we can with that. Why they don't work out is sometimes the dog surprises us. And occasionally a blind person surprises us, but we do everything we can when we're working beforehand to vet the person out and to vet the dog out with blindfold training, testing and the like. And so it, it, it's just that sometimes they just don't get along either. It's very rare on that. Subject. It's usually a work reason. Sometimes the dog decides they are not up to that challenge with that person or that environment. And sometimes it's just a personality conflict. Well, this is Keith. Thank I'm was gonna assume that Eric was done. Thank you, Keith. And, you know, as we talked about with the matching process, it come, sometimes comes down to compatibility. And sometimes the, the dogs or the clients might not get along with each other. It might not be the exact dog that the client was thinking they were gonna come to leader dogs to get, um, but it is rare that um, it doesn't work out. Uh, sometimes it's a medical issue for the dog or the client, um, but again, we try to make sure we vet all of that uh, before we bring a, the client here and give them the dog. Um, but the dogs are animals and uh, medical things happen with the dogs. Um, and then once the person gets home, sometimes it's inactivity, like they didn't uh, realize how much work a dog, a guide dog was going to be as far as getting out and working that dog and walking with the dog every day. Um, and we try to make sure we give them all that information before they come to get a guide dog. Um, but sometimes it's just the, the expectations of the client as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And Marissa? Um, I completely agree with everything Keith said, um, very much so. So once they come into class to make this brief, you know, there might be the first week we kind of carry them more because especially if they're a new client, they're hesitant. Um, 
So the dog feeds into that, but we know the dogs ultimately. So we know at this point what they can hopefully handle as we have conducted many blindfold tests and whatnot. So you kind of wean off of that and through second and third week, you kind of let them kind of go on their own because that's what's gonna happen when they get home. Um, I always tell, like we tell our clients typically nine to 12 months is what really makes a good solid guide dog team. When you get home, you cannot have the same expectation when you're in class. So we um, have our lectures every day. If they do not follow our advice, that really is on them because when they get home, the good thing for the um, client is they know their home area, hopefully, and the dog does not. So that should make it easier for them. They know where they're going. So their job is complete teamwork is to start off slow and then start to, you know, make your routes longer or, you know, add in a few more disruptions. So um, if it doesn't work, it obviously could be either uh, a safety reason. It could be the person, maybe um, they didn't realize how much work was involved and they thought more. So it was a magic carpet um, per se, and it's a dog, a dog is a dog. So they may have bad days. Maybe they're not feeling well. So um, we will always do follow-up and uh, continue to try and make that team successful. But I would say overall, like most schools, it is not, it, it's pretty rare to have a team that does not successfully work out. Um, it happens, but. Okay. Um, Susie, as our guide dog user, how about your experiences and With why some, do you think? You know, some of our, our clients out there, they, they gain a ton of confidence as soon as they get that harness in their handle or handle, yeah, the harness handle in their hand. You know, if, if, if you've traveled with the cane extensively, you know how to use it. You know you have to find the obstacle, find your way around it. When you get a dog in your hand, you, you no longer have to do that. That's the dog's job. So what we see is, you know, somebody might walk a little slower. When they get here, we've picked a dog for them at a certain pace, a speed that we've, we've calculated carefully. They get here and within two or three days, they're saying this dog's too slow for me. Their confidence has been gaining and they're, they're ready for the next step up. So um, occasionally during class, we have to make those decisions and, and hope that we get the dog that is the right dog for them before they ever walk out of here. So just like everybody else said on the rare occasion, and there can be, life can happen if that makes sense to everybody. Life can get in the way of having a guide dog. So we always try to keep our team successful, but at the end of the day, we want everybody safe and happy, including our dogs. So that's what we look at. Okay, thank you. By the way, a number of years ago, I applied at Southeastern and I was evaluated and they told me they didn't have a dog fast enough for me. <laughs> I, I believe that. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to you again, Susie. Um, Keith mentioned, and you actually mentioned also, um, how important do you think lifestyle is in terms of matching process? I mean, including medical condition uh, and mobility's previous mobility skills of the person. I think it's at the, up, at the top of our list for importance. We have to know that somebody is physically able to work a dog, but also have a dog that is two, two years old in the backyard with them. So it's not just their harness behavior that has to be the person has to be capable of dealing with. It's also just their out of harness um, behavior as a dog. We also really emphasize on orientation and mobility training. There's terminology and things that you learn during that that are imperative when you have a guide dog. 
you know, when I, I get to a T intersection, if I don't know my surge of traffic and I haven't learned that during orientation and mobility and I just tell my dog forward go, it's going to be dangerous because I'm not making the right decision to start with. So for us at Southeastern, those are the two most important things for us, their physical abilities and their, their ability for orientation and mobility. We have to have those in place. Okay. Uh, Marissa, as a trainer, what's your thought about lifestyle, including medical condition and mobility skills in terms of matching? Uh, very similar to what Susie said. Obviously, we need to make sure that the client is safe and physically in good condition enough to work a dog. Um, if they require a support cane, that's usually no issue. Most of our dogs can easily adapt to something like that. Um, but training wise, you have to know where you're going, you know, in essence, like when you're here on campus, we give you the direction, but when you go home, if you don't know your home area as well, it's very unfair for the dog because at that point, that's where the teamwork comes in. You must know where the dog what direction to give the dog. The dog will get you from point A to point B safely, but you have to know what to do, where to tell them where you are at. Um, you know, sometimes I know we have students, they might ask for directions from someone at a corner at their like area. And if they're given the wrong direction and they tell the dog that and the dog goes, they can't really hold that against the dog because all they've done is tell the dog the direction, the dog kept them safe. So if they got lost, that's really on them from not having enough training with their uh, O&M instructor. Okay, good. Does that help? Yep, thank you. Okay, Keith, what's your thought about, you mentioned lifestyle earlier. What's your thoughts on the importance of lifestyle? And of course, as, as head of the deaf blind program at LEADER, you're dealing with medical situations as well. So what's your thoughts? Right, I think the, uh, you know, the key to having a, a young guide dog is the fact that the, the people actually have to be mobile. And um, I believe Marissa had mentioned that some dogs don't need as much activity and that's very true. Um, it's, it does come down to the initial question of the match with the client. Um, obviously we have people that are on dialysis and, and those different uh, medical issues um, that come along with that, but we try to try to match that dog according to the person's ability. Obviously, if the person uh, were concerned during the application process of their, their orientation mobility skills, we can go out and visit them in their home to do a, a pre-assessment um, on their O&M skills. We, we do have an O&M department here as well, and sometimes we refer um, applicants to that, the orientation mobility department and just to kind of, you know, increase and enhance those skills a little bit before they come to get a dog. During the O&M training, we will take them out for a dog walk as well if they're interested in a, in a guide. And that gives us more information about the, the clients too, their ability. Um, we also use uh, the Victor Trek um, GPSs. So the clients are able to use that GPS to help navigate, but obviously, that's not a solution. If the person doesn't know their home environment, um, which I think is the, the message that's been mentioned by everyone so far, um, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna be fair to the dog and it's not gonna work out. Um, the only other thing I'll say is we have a flex program as well. So we can bring a client into leader dogs for two weeks and then we send an instructor home with them for a week. 
to help introduce that dog to that home area. That's not for every client. It's for people that we have concerns about their mobility with. Okay, good. Okay, Eric, you're the the founder, owner, trainer for probably the only of the programs that are only home training. Um, you've been doing it for a number of years now. So what's your thought on my question about lifestyle? Yes, I thank you, Doug. That was, uh, I think, one of the things I first mentioned in the first question. Um, yes, it's just us and Fidelco Guide Dog, where I came from, and so did my mentor, who founded it. Um, and because we are only home-based, we get uh, greater feedback, which most guide dog schools are now doing home interviews, too, to a point, at least through Zoom or at least personal one-on-one -on -one with some staff member. And that is what's so important is getting that bigger picture. It's amazing sometimes when you go to meet people where they live and they told you about their environment, not necessarily their home as much, but the, their environment. And um, now the beauty of it with Google, um, the Google car and that you can zoom in on anybody's table <laughs> and take a look around, depending unless it's a gated community. So, and if it is, you know, it's a pretty safe environment. So we, I tend to do that more and more now and to um, uh, check on uh, just that. So again, it, it's making that match. Will this dog be happy in that neighborhood? Will they be um, and, uh, stimulated enough or entertained enough to, you know, I, I've spent 40 years working with guide dogs in New York City, which is, to me, is one of the hardest places in the United States. Um, and uh, it, the, the dog there has to be desensitized to chaos, you know, whereas a dog uh, and the same dog would not be happy taking a uh, country mile in, up in Maine or New Hampshire, which we also serve. So they, like Keith said and the others, it, it's just very important that 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 part of it, you know, you might have the perfect dog, but it's not suitable to that environment. So the dog has to be satisfied too to have a successful match. Okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. By the way, I wanted to mention that Keith is the only of our panelists, the only one that's there in person on site. So if you have any questions, see Keith later. Um, you're going to be in the exhibit area, I believe, after, right, Keith? I mean, uh, Karen, I mean, Eric? Yes, we have a booth in the other room. Okay, good. So if you have any questions, he's there to talk. Okay. Um, as it was mentioned, I've had eight guide dogs over the past... 49 years. Um, one of the things that I've been, I've noticed is the, the issue of residual vision. Of course, most people who are blind do have some residual vision. I'm curious to know what your program's thought is about how do you match a person who has residual vision and what role does the residual vision have in terms of using a guide dog? And Eric, let me uh, pick on you first. Okay, thanks, Doug. Um, yes, that is very important. Um, you have to make sure the dog is comfortable with somebody that we, we train all the dogs as if we were totally blind and we test them under blindfold uh, aggressively. So you need a dog that will relinquish a little bit of control when they think they have total control and you're when they're navigating and it is very very um 
onus on the instructor to educate the blind person to use that vision. We don't want them not to use it, but when to use it, when not to use it. I even school people when I do interviews like I did yesterday, they, said they, have, a, they have some acuity in like a 10% or 8% field of vision in only one eye. And a little bit of vision can be dangerous. So, you know, you want them not to be using it when, when they should be concentrating on their dog and travel. So I always tell them, remember to halt, take into your environment either through auditory or visually and then move on. But don't be trying to do both at the same time. You'll lose focus on your dog and cause something to go very wrong. So it, it's just very important. We, we, we are not picky about it. Uh, you know, there has been a very rare occasion when somebody's had too much vision. And that we're talking, you know, pretty broad, broad reach in both eyes, but very, very rare that we see that. Those people usually don't ask for dogs, so. Okay, so in other words, it's a question of a person's ability to depend on the dog instead of what they think they can see? Exactly, because sometimes they think they can see and it's not really exact. You know, and Doug, when you're saying that, um, the big picture is, Sure, they can see, but it's what, four feet, two feet, and, and, and the dog is planning way far ahead. You know, as guide dogs, we train them to be calculating all the way down the block. They're not worrying about it, but they see obstacles before a, a person with that little field of vision. You know, no matter how short or narrow or broad it is, is, the dog sees all the way to the next corner and is, is already lining up with the next crossing, you know, as far as a straight line goes. So. It's very important that the blind person trust the dog, let the dog do the work is my mantra all the time. They hear it in my sleep, um, <laughs> their sleep, I say, say and, and, and they just need to, to not let go. You know, I always educate them. The blind person's the captain of the ship and the guide dog is the navigator. And what does the captain do? He relinquishes control to the navigator until the next decision needs to be made, like a down curve or an obstacle or something. And so it's important to let the dog do the work. And then, you know, if you want to jump in, halt the dog, take inventory and then move on, but not to interfere with the dog while he's doing it, other than halting him to second. You know. Okay, thank you. Okay, Keith, what's your thought? Well, I totally agree with what Eric said. And um, obviously it comes down to the client learning to trust the dog if they haven't used the guide dog in the past. Um, and we have different techniques to try to help with that. If we notice someone is not totally trusting their dog, we can put the dog away and go human guide or Juno and spend a little more time with them um, and getting to feel what the dog is relaying to them through the harness. Um, the other thing we offer is occlusion training and uh, blindfold training. So most schools probably do that as well. We don't force anyone if they don't feel comfortable with uh, a partial blindfold or a complete blindfold, we will not make them do that. But it it does give them a better sense of how the dog is working for them. And it helps them gain some trust in that dog's uh, ability. But um, as Eric said, of course, we want them to use the remaining vision to their advantage. We just don't want them to take responsibility away from the dog, which can happen. Okay, thank you. Um, Marissa. First, I have a request to not go last next time. Because oh, okay, so, okay. Same well, thing. But, okay, well, go to Susie then. <laughs> no, no, no. I have no. something to say. <laughs> um, okay. I agree with everyone. So obviously trust is the number one key first. 
but that's very challenging for someone who A, has never had a dog, B, has some residual remaining vision. So um, to Keith's point, we will also do Juno walks. It depends on the person. Each person's different. Um, we obviously stand back so we can tell. Sometimes they overwalk the dog. That's a big issue because they're not weighing, you know, staying back, waiting for the pull. So that could be maybe where you think you need a dog that needs more pull and they just weren't confident with that because they don't have trust. Um, we also will um, offer um, to wear a blindfold or a mindfold. Um, you know, usually within the end of that first week, you really can start to see that they're struggling or you are behind them and you see the dog really trying to carry them and you're like, follow your dog, follow your dog. And they're not, and they're like, I am, I am like, nope. Um, so we, I would say most of our um, clients when they come in are open to that idea. Some are not. Um, we do night training. I think that is where a lot of our clients or students really can tell at that point, wow, I've been steering my dog or I've been doing a lot of the work for my dog. And so for us, that's really important because they start to realize and they start to trust because the dogs are doing the right thing. But a lot of people at night, like they can see the shadows and they get scared. Um, but we just remind them we're always there. Also steering the harness. We have different methods for that. Um, different types of handles or grips we can use. Um, sometimes we'll teach like the student to hold like a newspaper or something under their arm to keep that arm, you know, in place. So they're not, uh, you know, incorrectly using the handle or steering. So, but it does all really boil down to trusting your dog, which is hard to do when you don't have that bond right away. And usually about the third week, they're like, ah, oh, I get it now. And you see them and they're like flying off and you're behind. And it's just, they need to just get used to the feel and the trust and really understanding it is still a dog mistakes happen. But as you gain more of trust and bond, usually a lot of that goes away, so. Okay, thank you. Susie, a comment? Um, Eric, you gave me flashbacks to my training. Follow your dog, <laughs> let the dog do your work. Uh, as somebody who has residual vision with a first guide dog, it was very difficult for somebody fully sighted to tell me to not use my vision. Um, what I learned to do through my training here was to use my vision to look at the things I can still see, but not the work my dog is doing. So if my head is where it should be, I can't even see my dog. So I absolutely had that hard time of the trust, but it did come and it was an aha moment, but it is a little tough to, for the client to say, I have five degrees and I'm not going to use it. That we, that's all we have left that we're holding on to it. But I think here we also explain to, our clients that if they start to do work for their dog, their dog will stop doing that work. And God forbid their vision change. And now their dog doesn't do the work they're going to need it to do. You're going to have to retrain, or maybe that dog isn't going to be the right dog for them. So we always just try to show them the importance of the dog doing the work over them. Look at the trees, look at the birds, whatever you can still see, but let your dog do the work. Okay, good. Good point. Thank you. Okay, this next one I want to ask about is something that I have felt I have felt with all of my dogs is very important. And that is the role of puppy raisers in exposing the future guide dog to issues and also teaching that dog proper behavior. Um, I know different different programs have different ideas about 
the role of puppy raisers. So Susie, I'm going to pick on you first. What's your thought about the role of puppy raisers? I know you use them a lot in Southeastern. Yeah, our, our puppy raisers are really the foundation work for our dogs as they're growing up. And we know what they've done and what they haven't done when the dogs come in for training, i.e. let's sit on a couch and the dog's paw goes up on the couch. We know that that puppy raiser was okay with that dog being on furniture, which, you know, they are puppies when they have them. So it's hard for them to, to say to them, no, 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 no. We really want the puppy to be in a positive environment. So for us, it's, it really does start the foundation work, house manners, you know, just exposures. If anybody can see my dog behind me, I'm, I apologize. He's a lab on the edge right now, um, but <laughs> he loves his puppy raiser. Um, it is really a, a, a rewarding thing for our, our volunteer puppy raisers to be able to see the fruits of their efforts and be able to reunion with their dogs just before they go into class and then meet the people that receive them. And most of our graduates will tell you that the puppy raisers, they see every trait that the puppy raiser saw, they see it still in the dog five, six, eight years later. So I think they're, for us, they're, they're really, we have to have them. And we have about 300 right now. Good. And you, you've actually, I think you answered on one of the things I was thinking of is what is the role of, um, current users in educating or speaking to puppy raiser organizations? So we, um, we encourage our graduates to, to team up with a puppy raiser group in their area to be able to help educate them on, to see a, a working dog and to give them some hope when their shoulders being ripped out of the socket with a, with a tough dog, but give them some, some, just some hope that the, the hard work that they're doing is, is sometimes not just changing somebody's life, but it's saving them. And it may only be a year in, of their life, but it is a 10 year, 12 year lifetime change in somebody else's life. So we encourage our graduates to have contact with their puppy raisers. We don't require it by any means, but we do encourage it. Good. Marissa, what's your thought? I uh, agree with everything that Susie said. I really have um, a lot of um, support for our raisers. I, they are the foundation because I mean, being a volunteer, and they take, it's like a full-time job raising a puppy. They go to monthly meetings. Obviously right now, current situations with COVID are a little different, but they're starting to meet or we'll do Zoom meetings. Um, we have, uh, the training managers have um, pretty, uh, I think it's about monthly, every two months, we have meetings with the puppy raising services department on maybe trends that we're seeing in training. So we're able to really communicate often on things we're seeing so that they can maybe discuss training something differently. So it's um, always changing, but our raisers, you know, they have them now even a little over a year because of COVID and their main objective from my point of view is they housebreak the puppy, teaching them the foundation of basic obedience. We use paw pads, um, which has, has been really great at keeping the dog in position and alignment. Um, Cause at times we were having a really hard time with them swinging out. So that has improved. And I just, I think that they're so um, important for our organization because if we didn't have them, I, I don't know what we would do. Um, they, you know, doing that for a full-time job out of the goodness of their heart. And we have some that come back and they're on their 20th and 30th dog. Um, and we're throwing out, like, they have a thick manual that they have to follow. And it's like, the fact that we have so many people willing to do that, it's amazing. And they do the best they can. And like Susie said, we try for um, the guide dogs, um, 
uh, once they make it, we try and have like a puppy raiser day reunion for them. So things have changed for COVID, but they still get that opportunity to meet over Zoom and talk about the dog and they can share stories. So I find it very important. And they also um, start to interact at um, the age appropriate um, times where they might start bringing them indoors or um, taking them into like low traffic residential areas and then working their way up before just throwing them into like loud traffic and heavy traffic. So they have a strict protocol to follow and I, I'm very grateful for them. Okay, good. Thank you. Keith, what's uh, leaders policy about um, puppy raisers and do you encourage uh, the students and the puppy raisers to interact? Yes, we absolutely encourage the puppy raisers and the clients to interact. Um, we give them their contact information and we leave it up to the to the clients if they want to contact the puppy raisers. Uh, with one exception, we have um, uh, quite a few of our dogs that are raised in different prison systems around uh, Michigan and some other states. Um, and obviously the inmates will write a letter um, to the client about the dog and about how the dog was um, growing up and things like that. And that's really the only communication they have with the inmates. Um, but um, obviously the exposure that our puppy raisers offer to the, the puppies as they're being raised is critical. I think just like with most guide dog schools, we have a very structured puppy raising program, including in the prison system where we have uh, puppy counselors that will take those dogs out and expose them to you know, the general public and, you know, um, stores and things like that and traffic. Um, so uh, it's, um, it's critical for, for our program to have those puppy raisers um, develop those dogs as they, as they grow. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it, you know, being a puppy raiser myself, as most, most staff members probably are who work at guide dog schools, um, it's, uh, it's just a privilege. It's, it's a really neat neat thing to be able to do. Okay, thank you. Okay, Eric. So we were had to be puppy raisers as well as uh, guide dog instructors to iron out the bugs in those donated dogs. I say all that so we can really appreciate what the unsung heroes of the guide dog puppy raisers are. Okay. Without them, we couldn't do it. And the success rate wasn't as very high with the donated dog, if I remember way back when. And so it is just a wonderful thing. And we so covet puppy raisers that are repeat puppy raisers. One of our puppy raisers is on number 25 or 26, uh, raising puppies for us in another program earlier before us, since we're only 30 years old next year. Um, oh. Yeah, I know, it's still, wow, I'm starting to feel my age. At that, you know? <laughs> 30 years. Okay. I've been in it over 40 years, so. Um, it's just so important that you're the encourager and, and, and um, teacher to these puppy raisers, especially the newbies, you know, to get them on board. And nobody's going to follow everything to the letter of the law, but you try to educate, which is so important, why we ask for some things to be done and why some things shouldn't be done. And of course, we sort of do that with the blind people too. It's like, well, you want that, tell the blind person, you want that dog to be in your bed or on your couch. And then the dog's nose is going to be out of joint when you're in a hotel like this or somebody else's house where the dog can't be in the bed. And so it's just something you have to work with and be aware of. 
So in our, in our mind, education is the key and uh, support. Yes, we have to have rules and guidelines and regulations, but the most important thing for my old school wife is, is, is the most important thing is to have a happy dog, which I think Keith mentioned too. You need a dog that is willing and wants to work and had a, had a good child upbringing, shall we say. And that, that is so key to making, uh, my old saying was, I can, we can fix all sins from what puppy raiders did, did or didn't do. And just as long as the dog comes in all happy and then we'll go from there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I have two, I guess, I don't know if this is my last one, two related questions. Uh, there've been a number of issues that I've read about in the last few months. So I wanted to see what your thoughts were. Uh, two, two related ones. Number one is your ownership policies and related to that, what is your repossession uh, policy in terms of a dog that's been placed um, if you see a problem. And let's see, start with Eric. Thanks, Doug. Um, over the years, um, we've learned to uh, tailor our position. Um, originally, it was more old school, but uh, probably 15, 20 years ago, we decided to go the route of seeing eye, talking to my good friend, Lucas Frank, and ownership is ownership the minute we walk away from you. If we are gonna leave you with the dog, we trust you, we believe in you, and we believe you'll be safe. Now, all that saying, occasionally something can happen, but we work diligently with the person to try to rectify it. Um, but they're, 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 it's their ownership. We can go off the rails sometimes with people, but you know, as far as people changing lifestyles, like we just had somebody that lived in New York City and moved to Kentucky. It's like they went from a big inner city down to a country road. So, you know, it's not repossession, it's just reconditioning. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, Keith, back to you. Yeah, so at Leader Dogs, we have a one-year automatic um, transfer of ownership. And it's just to get through that whole transition period that we talked about. Um, we ask for a vet report to make sure that the dog is maintaining its weight and not, not uh, growing as we know some dogs, uh, especially Labradors, uh, are known to do. Um, but yeah, it's just an automatic um, process. So the clients don't have to do anything. They just automatically get ownership of the dog. As far as repossession, I, you know, that's a, that's a word I haven't heard in a long time because uh, just like Eric had mentioned um, back in the day, that used to be kind of the, the standard. We, if something wasn't working out with the dog, we would go get the dog. Now we work directly with the clients. We go and visit them. We try to resolve any issues that might come up. Um, if they voluntarily give the dog back to us, then obviously we would take it. Um, on very rare occasion, um, we might get the local authorities involved if there's an abuse or neglect complaint, um, because we don't have the right to, to walk in and evaluate um, if we don't have permission from the client. So that's, um, that's the leader dog uh, policies. Okay, thank you. And Marissa and Susie, how about Southeastern's policy? Susie, do you want to start with? Absolutely. So we have a transfer of ownership agreement that's signed the day before our clients leave. However, within that contract, we do have um, sections called suspected abuse and negligence. 
So that gives us the right that if we are getting a report, we do an investigation and we feel like the dog is in peril, it gives us the right to retake that dog. Um, just like Keith said, some people want to give the dog back to us, whether or not we've helped them or not, sometimes it's just their choice. So a surrender to us is much different than us retaking a dog because of a breach of the contract. So rarely do we have to remove a dog for breach of contract, but we will because our philosophy is where this, sorry, Carson's philosophy is it's itchy right now. Um, our philosophy is we are the advocates for our dogs because they cannot advocate for themselves. And we trust our clients as they leave, but again, life happens and we wanna make sure that our dogs are cared for for the, their life. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I wanna clarify. In terms of ownership, so does Southeastern retain ownership of the dog or what? We do not retain ownership. We do, um, like Keith said, we do require veterinary um, proof that they're vaccinated, things like that, because we have an alumni benefits program. <laughs> My dog okay. is good. Um, we have a alumni benefits program where we offer free food, vaccinations, um, monthly preventatives, and wellness checks for our dogs. So we do have to at least have them checked on annually to provide that benefit to our graduates. Okay, Marissa, do you wanna add anything? I did, I just, going back to Susie's point, we uh, and Keith, like definitely if, um, like we have a lifetime commitment to that team. So if there is any issue or let's say they move, um, which happens often, um, we will, once they're settled in, we will go out and either someone from um, Susie's department, an alumni support advisor who is a certified guide dog instructor, or if they're busy, one of, she'll reach out to another a certified instructor to go out. And so we definitely do, we, the last thing you want to do is um, break up a team unless there is a huge safety concern. So if it's neglect, um, obviously we take that very serious, but we definitely give every option to help them. If the dog is overweight, we coach them um, and then we come back. But, you know, to a certain degree, it is neglect. And, um, you know, if you were to get a dog that is double its weight when it left, like that's just not acceptable and that's not fair for the dog. Um, so just going back to Susie, we do make every attempt to make that team successful. Okay, thank you. And I have one last, which is a kind of a fun question. Um, after I sent you the, for you the, the proposed questions, I received another question. Here it is. Um, what is your program's policy on teaching a dog to work with a, a, a person, a blind person who is a runner? And let's see, how about, I'm gonna pick on Keith this time. I'm sorry, Marissa, you're just not gonna to get to go first. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, oh, that's, <laughs> sorry, Marissa. <laughs> uh, you know, at Leader Dogs, we really don't have um, a lot of experience with that. Um, so we do have some clients that request that now and then, uh, but typically we would, um, advise them uh, that there are other schools that have the experience with uh, training running dogs. Um, okay. so we would refer them to the other schools, similar to what schools would do for us if um, they had a deafblind client that applied. They might, um, you know, suggest they go to one of the other schools that services deafblind. Okay, good. Thank you, 
Marissa, how about picking on you next? <laughs> well, Keith answered almost perfectly to us. So we um, also do not specifically train for that. Just like all schools, you're going to have some people that really want to do that. Um, so we don't train the dog specifically. That's not to say there couldn't be a case by case maybe we look at. Um, but in regards, like you, most of our students that um, do like uh, triathlon, like crazy stuff that I can't even imagine, but running a lot, they always have the option to have a guide that they're tethered to. So that to me is a preference. I think um, just a personal opinion, having a guide run, if you're going for a certain amount of time, we do have a lot of dogs that are really fast, but I think a walking fast pace is much different to keep you safe than your dog running and also being responsible to make sure you don't trip over uneven pavement or whatnot. So it's not to say we um, never would, but we do not specifically train for that. Okay, do you wanna add anything, Susie? Uh, my only thing to add is that I think about the runner thinking how much condition they have to go through, conditioning they have to go through to be prepared. If they're going to run with their dog and not expect them to guide them, then they need to think about what condition their dog would need in that instance. Good point, good point. Eric? Same as Keith would say, we have very, very little experience with it other than over the years, we've had several uh, Paralympic uh, people and they wanted to try to get some extra additional exercise, but no real competitive running. So we defer to Guiding Eyes who's really pioneered that uh, program. And if they can't get in there, we'll work with them within reason, but it's not gonna be competitive running. I mean, they have to wait for somebody that's really experienced in that. We're spend more, most of our time working with special needs people up to 50% of our staff. So we're focused on the other direction, unfortunately. So okay, just doing a good job. So we let them have it. All right, thank you. And I appreciate the four of you uh, being here to share your information. That's fantastic. Okay, uh, we have a few minutes left. So let's open the floor to anyone who has any questions or comments. Um, first of all, anyone in the room that has any questions or comments that you'd like to bring up, uh, if you do, raise your hand and we'll get you a microphone. I'm Tom Hansen and I have a question regarding footwear for dogs, depending on climate, like in the south, the roads and sidewalks can get very hot or uh, I left all the snow up in Wisconsin 10 months out of the year. So what do you do about making it more comfortable with footwear for dogs and telling the owners about such footwear? Doug, do you want me to answer that? That's Marissa. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Any, oh, any sure. one of you can okay. answer it. Um, obviously we're in Florida. So the footwear, we use um, the company Roughwear and just if you're not aware, you can sign up and they give anyone with like, a guide dog or a service dog, you do get a 30% discount, which is pretty hefty. So um, just FYI for anyone for their products. But we um, have used those. We don't specifically train our dogs while they're in training, but if we have clients that come into class and that's something they're really interested in, if they do live up north and they're worried about the salt burning their feet or down here where they need ones that are breathable, um, sometimes they'll order it, have it shipped here and we will work on that during class. We let them know, um, you know, you can't just like slap them on the dog right away and go. They're gonna be like a cat. They start throwing their feet all around. I will say they usually adjust to it, but you wanna make it fun. Um, also, if your dog, just for experience, if they have dew claws, 
you need to be careful of that, how you place the boot on, because um, often I've seen people do that and the dew claw is like hanging out and it looks very uncomfortable. But um, I think it's safe as long as you have ones that are breathable and they're used for the protection of whether it's like hot surfaces or if you're up north and you're worried about the salt um, burning their pads or their feet. Thank you. Anyone else on the panel have a uh, want to answer Tom's question? Yes, um, at Leader Dogs, we we do expose all of our dogs and teach them how to wear boots throughout training. Not every day in training, but um, we use a product called Pause, and it's a um, kind of a oh, I'm trying to think of what the material is, but it's a rubberized material that fits over their paw like a balloon. Cool. And, um, you know, we just want to get the dogs used to wearing boots because of the salt and obviously some clients go into the hot weather and also sometimes on escalators, um, it helps with safety of escalators. Um, so that's, that's what we do. Interesting. Okay. Um, Susie or Eric, you want to add anything? I do not. I'm good. Okay. Okay. Uh, do we have a question from one of our Zoom attendees? If you do, raise your hand. We do, um, um, we do have a grand, Greg Lindbergh. Greg. Please yes. Because we're out of time. Okay, just real quick for Eric. So I do. Uh, I did qualify to get a Barbet from Freedom, and I was just curious how you guys selected the Barbet breed in terms of personality and what I can kind of expect from that. Okay. Are we at an end now? Oh, sorry, Eric, go ahead. We were trying to work with the poodles and after so much time, uh, uh, low success rate per dog, per them as a guide dog. We were over in France at the International Guide Dog Meeting and my wife and I, and we were at one of the schools in Paris and we real asked them how they'd worked out with poodles and they go, that's not a poodle, that's a barbet. So we've been really uh, struggling along to develop a line of barbets for ourselves, which at the moment is still uh, is still questionable. So we're also while trying to develop a barbet line for dogs that don't shed. We're working on bouviers, which is going to take us a couple of years to get our first litter out in the field. But I've had success placing a bouvier in New York City, placing one in Florida. Um, Unfortunately, the one in Florida didn't work out, but so we are now training two more that we'll test, uh, test ground while we develop a female for breeding and creating specifically bred bouviers for guide dogs. Right now, it's just in its infancy stage, but the two that came are coming in for training, I'll have one, and up, up in New York, they'll have one, and we believe that that is a, that is a proven breed in the past, the bouviers, so we're hoping to develop that, but again, Anybody that needs a dog that, that, that does not shed is an expensive endeavor that they need to be trimmed every three months, trimmed or groomed. And the grooming is a lot more expensive for than getting a dog a bath and a brush out. So, um, but yes, the barbays that have made it, we're very happy with them. We've got a, a load of them coming in now, I believe seven, and we're hoping to see what success rate we have with this litter and also trying to bring on Bouvier litters. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And Katie, we're about out of time, correct? Yes, sir, we are out of time. Thank you very what, much. What a every great panel. Yes, thank you everyone for attending. I appreciate Everybody's it. Clapping my panel, now. thank you. I appreciate it. All right, thank you everyone. I appreciate it and enjoy the rest of the convention. <laughs>